0: Welcome back to another week of our series called Jesus, the Servant King. And we're in week three, and we've talked about some amazing things so far, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And we've been specifically looking at, into some things of Jesus's life through the lens of the gospel of Mark. And we'll do so the same today. There's something that's amazing that has happened in my life uh, just recently, actually. Of course, the message I'm about to preach to you right now, I've, I've kind of had this in my mind, and it's, it's been put together for some time. And yet I love when the Word of God and the message that I'm going to preach actually bears out in everyday life. And this happened last night, actually. Uh, we're recording this. This is Tuesday. So last night when I went home, it had been a long day at work and, uh, and just got home and was kind of tired and just really was anxious to sit down in my chair. And if you've been to my house, you know that my green chair is kind of a thing for me. I love this green chair. It's kind of old and wore out and it's wore in. I love the chair. The problem is whenever I went home and I looked over at my green chair, I realized that the, the lazy boy, the feature of it, the, the, the part that would extend out for my legs was caught in the middle and it was stuck there. It wouldn't move up and it wouldn't move down. So I was thinking, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? Like I thought it for a minute and I thought, well, I'm just going to ignore this. And then I sat down in the chair and I was like, well, I can't just ignore it like my, it's halfway in, halfway out. So I flipped the chair over and I did what most of you would do when you're faced with something that's inconvenient or interruption like this. I opened up YouTube and Marla looked up some things on YouTube and we worked together as a team and then the very next thing that we tend to do to fix things, we got a hammer. And so we turned it over, watched the YouTube video, we grabbed a hammer and then Marla hit the, hit the thing right where it needed to and all of a sudden, the chair closed up just like it was supposed to And I have no idea if it's fixed. All I know, it was closed. I didn't dare open it up again because I didn't want to be bothered with it anymore. All that to say, it's an interruption. Life is full of interruptions. There's something that I wanted to do. I wanted to go home and just relax. I wanted to watch some TV and just kind of like melt into my green chair for a little bit. I'm sure you have a chair, your couch or loveseat or something that you sit in. And, and it's kind of the same thing. And that was an interruption for me. And what it told me was, even in that moment, I was fighting something internal. I was like, uh-oh, I, I, I knew that I could escalate and I could become angry. I didn't, and I'm, I praise God at that, that I had an awareness that I wasn't going to get angry. But you, you and I have the same types of things that happen all the time. We have life interruptions. So the question is, do you like life interruptions? Before you answer no, I think that there are sometimes we do have life interruptions that we do like, like for instance, finding out that you are having a baby. That is a great life interruption. It's like, however life was before this child, now after the child, everything's going to be different, at least for a season, probably a long season, like an 18-year season. So it's different. So we may look at that and say, oh, well, that's a good interruption. Well, What about when your computer crashes? Now, I'm not talking about the computer crash that happens if you have like an Apple computer or a Mac to where it just, you know, you just have like the spinning wheel and it's delayed. When I'm talking about a computer crash, I'm talking about black screen flashing cursor up in the window, like that kind of crash. That's a life interruption. And especially if you hadn't saved the material ahead of time you're really going to feel that interruption. So do you like that? Give me a thumbs up or thumbs down if you think that is a good interruption. Of course, you're going to say thumbs down. What about this one? A sunburn on the first day of your summer vacation. Sunburn on the first day of your summer vacation. How would that be? Is that thumbs up or thumbs down if that is a good interruption or not? More than likely... Not a good interruption because you plan to be somewhere sunny. You got too much sun on the first day, which means you're going to be secluded from everybody else for the next couple days. For all you students out there, here's one for you. You lost your book that you needed to do tonight's homework. Now, don't look at your parents, but just how would you answer that? Some of you are like, yes, I lost it. That's awesome. And then some of you are like, no, that's bad because that means there's more to do tomorrow it could go either way, right? What about this one? Back to you parents. Your toilet overflows and you realize it that when you're about to leave for church. Your toilet overflows and you're about to leave for church. Is that a positive or is that a negative? It's a negative, right? Of course, unless, of course, that you'd planned on redoing the bathroom anyway and then all of a sudden you just get your bathroom redone. So it changes. We all have to deal with life interruptions. What I love about the life of Jesus that we see captured in the Gospels is we see how well that Jesus dealt with life interruptions. We all, all of us, you and I are, are, are really no different in so many ways that, of Jesus' life. So we all, just like Jesus, have to deal with interruptions and how we deal with them says a lot about us. So how we deal with them, how we respond, do we, how, do we react or do we over? React. Here's the thing I know, and I love how the Proverbs speak into everyday life. Proverbs 16, 9 says this, In his heart, a man plans his course. In other words, we decide what we're going to do. We're going to go to college. We're going to be married by this time. We're going to have kids. We're going to have X amount of kids. We're going to live in that house. And we're going to live in that neighborhood. And this is what life is going to look like. This is happily ever after. And we, a man plans his course, but notice what the rest of that proverb says. But the Lord determines his his steps. In other words, we say, yes, we're going to go do these things, but the Lord says, mm, I don't know. I'm to that the Lord determines our steps for us. We may accomplish some of these things, but He may have us going in a different direction. And He is the one who's determining our steps. See, sometimes we have these interruptions, and in, in our life, we can think they're just so annoying. We can think, oh my goodness, I had just set out this course of life and I planned on doing this. And sometimes, get this, annoying interruptions can be divine disruptions. Sometimes annoying interruptions, things that we're just like, really? They can be divine disruptions. In other words, something that God has put in our lives to help us to maybe redirect our heart or redirect our plans to where He wants us to be C.S. Lewis, the brilliant C.S. Lewis, he said this about this topic. He says, The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions to one's life or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life, the life God is sending one day by day. I want us to look at this topic and look at interruptions. And I want us to specifically see there's three different disruptors or interrupters, however you want to term it, in the passage that we're going to get to. But because of where we've gone already, we know that Jesus had this amazing interior life, an interior life where He was abiding with the Father, where He communed with the Father, that He prioritized this time where He would be able to relay just to the Father. So as we look at this beautiful display and how Jesus interacts with these people, know that it happens when He's being interrupted. And notice how well He deals with these interruptions. And He doesn't just see it as an interruption to His life, but instead He sees it as just the path to His life. You see, the exterior life of Jesus was made possible by Jesus' interior life. The exterior life of Jesus was made possible by Jesus' interior interior life. As we go into the gospel of Mark chapter 3 verse 20, what we're going to see is is how all this is just a beautiful display of the life of Jesus. And also not just a day in the life of Jesus, but also how Jesus responded to people, how he was was available to people. And I've, I've taken a lot of strides to try and show you throughout the course of this series of how Jesus dealt with the humanity in front of him. As a matter of fact, how Jesus not only dealt with humanity and he saw the people who came around him, they saw just part of his life and part of his ministry, even if it seemed like a quote-unquote disruption from what else he was doing. So Mark chapter 3 in verse 20, this is how the passage begins. Then Jesus entered a house and again, (laughs) notice this, And again, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. It's Quite an interruption. When his family heard about this, they went to take care of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. For the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. This is an amazing passage right here. Jesus said this, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now, here's three different times already that Jesus has used this reference. He's conveying the same point. He's conveying the exact same point. He says in verse 25 again, If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house. Fourth example of the exact same thing. Fourth illustration that Jesus is using. Now a strong man. He says, can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemes of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then... Notice this in verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. The crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother there a man there is so much in this passage but we're going to begin back in verse 20 in verse 20 jesus <clears throat> excuse me enters a house and again a crowd gathered again and they gathered him and the interruption is now the crowd has gathered and, and they're demanding so much of his time and so much of his energy that now he can't even eat and so now consequently This is an interruption. What do you expect Jesus to do during this interruption? Jesus had this amazing way of, of walking with His heavenly Father to build up His interior life, so then His exterior life clearly displayed the relationship that He and the Father had. And that's what we see here, this interruption. And it's an interruption that people are obviously people in His family. Verse 21, it says... When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. They're like, now they're responding harshly towards him. Now, I want you to know, too, at this time, nobody believed that Jesus was the Messiah, not even his family, but eventually even some in his family would. And I'll just give you this source. You can write this down for later. In Acts 1, verse 14, in Galatians 1, verse 19, we see that some of his family, they start, they believe, they they repent and believe. The good news that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and and they start following the way. You know, one of the things that it really came to mind when you when I looked at the passage specifically in verse twenty one, is how difficult it had to have been for Jesus to minister to his own family. And I have an explanation, and it's it's a rather elementary explanation of this, but I think it's an explanation that we all can really track with. So. Family can be some of the hardest people to minister to. It's the same in my life. It's going to be the exact same in yours. So I have a couple different ideas. First one is this, that being a follower of Jesus who takes the Bible seriously, they, they face opposition. They just do. So just by being a follower of Jesus and not being a follower of the world, automatically, when you take the Bible seriously, it automatically means that you're going to face Opposition. I, I wish there were another way, but there's not another way. The, the second thing is this. Your faith can be misinterpreted as criticizing others. It doesn't mean that there's a problem with your faith. It, me, it, it simply means that there's unbelief in someone's heart. Because even in my own story, probably similar to some of yours, if you just simply want to display Jesus to a family, and in your family there is unbelief, or cultural Christianity, which is not true belief, but they're just, they kind of look the part and sound the part, but they don't really believe the part, that, your faith can be misinterpreted as criticizing others. And it's because they're th- ultimately because they're threatened by your faith, because they see something in you that they don't have, Within themselves, the third thing is this: your zeal may be seen as too spiritual, because it simply threatens cultural Christianity. So your zeal—I've seen this so much right here in the Bible Belt. We've lived here for ten years. I, I am not a critic of the culture; I'm a student of the culture. Whatever a culture that I'm in, I'm a student of the culture to to bring the gospel into that culture. And we are a, uh, as someone once said, we are gospel saturated our gospel haunted culture in other words the gospel is everywhere but yet it, it, there's there's like a substance of it but not the full substance and and it's just it kind of like it gives us eeriness of being around but not the potency of the spirit you see your zeal may be seen as as too spiritual because it simply threatens somebody else's cultural christianity you you will be accused as being a hypocrite because they remember you before you followed Jesus. So they, there's a disconnect in people and they won't always receive you for who you are right now. They may only view you as a as little child that you were or maybe the wayward person that you were or in, in the place and stage of your life where, where you, were, you were helpless and you were harassed like we talked about last week when you were, you were a sheep looking for a shepherd before you met Jesus and your life was so encum- encumbered by sin And they may remember those days, and they may want to bring those days back up when you try to minister to your family. Again, it's simply not necessarily even pointing out a problem in you. It can mean actual victory in you. And because they remember you from before, they have a disconnect because they lack the belief that you do. The fifth thing is this. Uncommitted Christians may see you as being an unreasonable radical uncommitted Christians may see you as being an unreasonable radical when you take God's word seriously and you look at at the specifically uh, you look at the teachings of Jesus and you pause long enough to, to trust and obey that God's word is true, instead of just looking over the hard sayings of Jesus and saying, well, that's a hard one. I'm just not going to understand that. That must be for somebody else. I'm just going to go live my life. But when you do those things and you sit and ponder and you trust God and you seek to obey God's word, even the hard truths, trust me, when you do that, you, you may be uh, perceived as being someone who's an unreasonable radical because you're simply clinging to Jesus. And another thing is this, the final one in this area is your pursuit of Christ. It will challenge the apathy of others. This is a time for you not to pass judgment on those who are maybe apathetic. This is a time for you to extend grace to them so that you, you, you can confront them, but you first invite them into relationship. So if they say that they're followers of Jesus and they're not really acting like followers of Jesus, take them at their word, remind them of the gospel that they say that they once believed and invite them into the discipleship relationship, the discipleship culture that Jesus talks about. In in verse 22 in this passage, we see there's this transition as well. And it brings to mind the teachers of the law. and, And I showed you uh, or rather, I told you about these interrupters. The first one was the crowd interrupting Jesus' Jesus's day, and he's apparently about to eat, and now he can't eat. So you see the crowd is, is the disruptor or interrupter. You see the next is his own family. The third thing you see is the teachers of the law, and they have a message that, that is very familiar throughout the Gospels. You see that they challenge Jesus up and down, there are people who knew the Old Testament. They're, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're threatened by Jesus' control. They're threatened by the masses that are following Jesus. They're threatened because the same masses that are following Jesus are most likely not following them. And they're, they're wanting to hear what Jesus has to say because it's fresh and because it's true. And because there's not a drop of hypocrisy in Jesus' life and ministry, but there is in the teachers of the law. So there's going to be accusation. That's what we see here in this passage as we start into verse 22. And the teachers of the law, he came down from Jerusalem. Now they came down to Jerusalem for the showdown. They said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Now notice, They couldn't admit that Jesus was God and they couldn't admit that Jesus was the Messiah because then they would admit that he has power that's greater than Satan. So what do they do? They do the the only thing they can do. They say he must be Satan. So Jesus's response is just taking a logical approach as to what they said. And he says, hey, if I'm from Satan, notice what he says in verse 23. He uses, he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? Second thing, if If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Notice the next illustration. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. He mentions Satan again. And then he continues on in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house. That's the fourth example conveying the same point. He says... He's simply using logic. He says, if I'm from Satan, he's going to use their very words against him. He says, if I'm from Satan and you're accusing me of being from Satan, he says, then the very power that you're accusing me of will tear itself down. But Jesus is more powerful than Satan. Amen. We rejoice that in Revelation 20, verse 10, we we go to the truth of God's word to say there's going to be one day where Satan himself is bound for eternity where he has no more authority that that he's been given on this earth, that he is bound eternally and for eternity. And we long for that day. But I love how Jesus just uses simple, just very simple logic. It brings about a really tangible point. You see, we can be around all of the knowledge of the Bible. We can be around spiritual people. We can be around... Uh, even the miracles of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have saving faith. I'll give you an example that doesn't have to do with faith, but it conveys the same meaning. For years, I, I worked on business jets and it was the type of business jets that Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 companies fly all over the country and all over the world. I worked on these, these jets. It wasn't as glamorous as what you think or maybe the, the image that you have in your head. It was a dirty job. I got covered with with oil and with jet fuel all the time, and it didn't matter how many times I took a bath, I stunk. That's the reality of it. But here's the thing about that job. I I was a pretty good technician, but I wasn't great. I mean, I worked with guys who were great. I mean, they were amazing at what they did. It, It just seemed like they were a whole other level, and it didn't matter how much time or how many years I spent working with them, I was not great like they were great. I was good and I worked hard. I mean, I had the toolbox. I had spent thousands of dollars on a toolbox, thousands of dollars on tools. I had many of the same things they did and I, and I tried to mimic and do some of the things they did. I just didn't have the mental capacity to think through things like they did. They were amazing at this and they were great. It didn't matter how much time I spent with them, I was never going to be where they were because they were on a different level. You see, faith is not an automatic or inevitable or a necessary consequence of witnessing the acts of God. It's just not. It doesn't mean it's automatic. It doesn't mean, parents, listen to me. It doesn't, it it doesn't, like... It doesn't mean that you just if you just bring your kids to church, or bring your kids to arise, or bring your kids to DBC Kids, that automatically they're going to have faith, they're going to walk with Jesus, they're going to love Jesus. No, no, no. There are so many things that you need to help them to be disciples of Jesus. We're simply one part, but you have the biggest part. And, and just by being here, and we can have these just amazing times of worship. We've we've experienced these here where it's just like the Spirit of God is just pouring down on the place. And it's like all we want to do is just like get on our knees and just praise and worship God and, and awe and adoration of Him. And, 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 and you can be in, in that room, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're automatically going to have faith. It doesn't mean the faith is inevitable. They, your kids, other people, people who are unbelieved, they can be a part of that. We could be just like the teachers of the law. They had been around the work of God, but they simply didn't have faith. They didn't repent and believe. The, the same message of, of Jesus, the same message of John the Baptist from Mark chapter 1. They didn't repent and believe. So they, they didn't, it, it isn't learn and believe. Listen to me. It isn't learn and believe. It isn't study, meditate, believe. It's repent and believe. You can have all of the other things. You can have all the spiritual things. But if you miss the repentance, the turning away from your sinful state, you will remain lost and you may be smart. You may know the Bible. You know, may know the Bible better than me. You may be, have all of the, the exterior things that make it look like that you're a Christian, but yet your interior life would say something else. You see, the crowd, the, the people, the teachers of the law, they couldn't deny his power because people were being healed. So instead of admitting that his power could have been from God, They just said that his power must be satanic. That's all they could say. That's all they could say. You know, in this passage, there's a a trouble passage here that I want us to look at. I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time on this. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of people who've studied this and they've come to some differing conclusions. But what I'm about to share with you is the conclusion that I've come to from my study and also studying those who have varying opinions on what this next passage means. Okay, so full transparency as we dig in. Verse 28, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemes of men will be forgiven them. Sounds great. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying that he was an evil spirit. And I want us to have this as a foundation before I give you some summary statements and other, some other scriptures that go along with this. This this. this foundational passage is one that we're pretty familiar with. The Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, and he talks about the relationship that we have with Christ. And he also talks about this. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if we're in Christ, we're not condemned for past sins. We're, We're not condemned for past sins nor future sins. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. This is a big, big idea. This is a really, really big idea. So, uh, this is a foundational belief that we have to have going into this. Now, I want to give you a couple statements and a couple passages or a passage to, to kind of roll into this as well. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is unbelief and unrepentance. That's what it is. Because it means this it means the deliberate or ongoing rejection of the Spirit's work. That that it is blaspheming against, or because of, excuse me, because it is the denial of God Himself. So they are denying that Jesus is God. So understand this in context. Teachers of the law and are challenging Jesus, they're unwilling to admit that He's God. So now, look what it says in verse 30. He said this, in other words, here's the explanation as to what Jesus was talking about. He said this because they were saying He was an evil spirit because they would not admit he was God or even from God or the Messiah. They didn't admit that. So Jesus uses this. And, and so again, one of the summary statements, the deliberate and ongoing rejection of the Spirit's work is blaspheming because it is the denial of God himself. And that's, that's what they were doing. They were denying God. Another one is this, by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, they have rejected the only way to be saved. Because it is only through Christ that one can be saved. A verse that you know, that I, I say this on, on a regular basis, one that I, hopefully you would use this to evangelize your, your family and, and friends and co-workers. That Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. John 14:6. That's what Jesus said. So He is the only way. So by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, they are in essence rejecting the only way to be saved. Therefore, they stand condemned for their sin. So what can we gather so far? We can gather this. Christians cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Go to the right in your Bible, if you would, to Romans 6, verse 20 through 23. And we're going to kind of summarize this little statement before we move on. But I want to summarize it with this verse. Again, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want us to then look at God's word so we're informed and we don't cast a bunch of theological dogma on this or confusion upon this or I want this to say this. Instead, we actually look at it in context and then also some adjoining passages that help to verify what Jesus is, is ultimately saying here in this passage, but then also what the Apostle Paul is echoing in Romans 6, verse 20 through 23. This is what he says. Romans 6, verse 20 through verse 23. There's there's two things I'm really going to show you to begin with. Right here at the beginning of verse 20, he says, when you were slaves to sin. When. So when you were slaves to sin. So now what he's about to display, he says, there's two different periods of time. When you were slaves to sin you were free from the obligation to do right. And as and what was the result? He says, you are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. He says, there's a way that you used to live when you were free from the obligation to do right. In other words, they they weren't informed by the Holy Spirit of God. They It was before that. They were enslaved to sin. But now, look what it says at the beginning of verse 22. He says, but... Now, so again, verse 20, you see, he talks about a period of time but he says, but now, now here's a different period of time. And, and what is the thing that, that separates these two spans of time? Salvation. But now you are free from the power of sin and, become, and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. A common verse for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What the uh, Apostle Paul is saying is this. He says, two different ways to live. There was one time that you used to live when you were slaves to sin and you didn't have any other way to live. You didn't know any different. He says, but now, verse 22, now you're free from the power of sin because they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These people had been saved. Now, because this is another another challenging passage, and I'm not going to deny how challenging this passage is. If you could go back to the left, go back to the original passage into Mark 3, and let's look at verse 31 as we wind up the passage today. It says this in verse 31, Then Jesus's mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was standing, a crowd was standing around him. And they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So what is Jesus saying? A couple statements. Jesus is saying that spiritual relationships are as binding as physical ones. Jesus is saying that spiritual relationships, being part of the family of God, are as binding as physical ones. He is also, at the same time, he's also paving the way for the new family of God. So he's paving the way for what we talked about last week, what the Apostle Paul talks about in so many of his letters of just talking about what is, the, what is the belief and the behavior of somebody who is a part of the new family of God. And he's also saying this, that the new family of God takes priority over earthly families. Let's look at the passage again. Notice what, what is being said. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? They looked at those seated. In, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister, and my mother." So the big idea is this: ultimately, the family of God is more, is is, is longer lasting, and even more important than our earthly families. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is a whole shift in our way of thinking. And this is this is a whole shift in, in what we even see here in the South because we are pro-family. But what Jesus is saying here is even your family, just as it was in Jesus's family, mind you, who was the second distractor or the, the interrupter that's mentioned? It started with the crowd and the second group was who? Jesus' own family, and then it was the teachers of the law. So Jesus is saying if that the, the priority that is set because the family of God is longer lasting and that they're even more important than our earthly families. This is a challenge for us, those of us who love family. And, and yet I think we can even see in our day and age and even where we live, I think we can see the importance of this. We can see the importance of this because the more digital and impersonal our lives become, the greater the effectiveness of being one as the family of God. Like, make no mistake, we're became, becoming more digital and, and consequently we're becoming more impersonal. And all the while it's just heightening this desire and, and hopefully in time even more uh, just an expectation that the family of God will show up and show out in amazing, in amazing ways. As I close this talk, I want to share with you three different passages and just showing you just the glorious display of the family of God. And, and I want you to understand all of this, everything that I've talked about in this amazing teaching of Jesus and what I've tried to convey to you was in a time that Jesus was being interrupted. He was being interrupted by by the crowds, and then his family, and then the teachers of the law, and he was so in, he was interrupted. But he saw it as a divine disruption, that whatever was going on was not as important as what was in front of him. So he took this amazing opportunity to convey this truth, and the last one about the importance of the family of God. So, John one verse twelve says this, I'm going to fly through these passages, but I want you to listen to them. It's more important that you you listen to them than simply write them down. So if you can write them down, that's great. But if not, just listen. John 1, verse 12, it says this, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13 says this, children born not of a natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. Just displaying God's plan all along to, that, that, to be part of the family of God is to be brought into God's family and how God knew it ahead of time and God chose for us this amazing way And I want to also share with you this passage. I'm flipping to Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22. Allow this word to wash over you. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, that's in Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Final one is this, Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, it's that word, Keras, by the way, as as we have the right time, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We should have lives that are open, open to God. We should live lives with open hands, schedules with open hands, allowing our life interruption to actually be seen to be seen as a divine disruption and we should say yes and amen it comes down to this and then I'll close how you respond to life's interactions says a lot about you so listen to what the spirit of god says to you about you and obey